Hey, welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman, and this week, you know, the week of just the most momentous city derby in some time in the Bundesliga, a derby that I have a personal stake in. I'm joined by a man who also does, only on the other side of that derby. So what could possibly go wrong with this combination? In the interest of keeping the peace, I am going to get this out of the way quickly. Congratulations to you, Kit Holden. Berliner Stadtmeister, 2019. Hurrah. Vielen herzlichen Dank. It was a, a real pleasure beating you guys yesterday. And thank you also for not firing a rocket at my head down the, uh, down the phone line here. <laughs> I, I can't see you, but are, are you wearing a mask? Are you, are you on the pitch right now? <laughs> I'm, I'm just wrestling with my own goalkeeper, actually. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yes, we'll be getting into not only the results of the, you know, Berlin Derby, uh, uh, as as it happened, uh, of course, a, a deserved win for Union, considering Hertha decided to to come to Copenhagen and do very little. But there was a lot more from that game to talk about. A lot more outside of that game to talk about. Of course, Leipzig scored a touchdown and a two point conversion in their game. Gladbach went three points clear at the top. Wolfsburg lost a game for the first time this season, and yeah. The mighty Bayern Munich got absolutely slaughtered. It was their worst loss in a decade. And what's happened just before we started to hit record on this episode, they decided that they didn't want their coach, Niko Kovac, to be their coach anymore. Lots to talk about, so don't think about going away. Here comes part one of Talking Foosball. The best of match day 10 is what we talk about in part one of this show. With me here today is Kit Holden, the guy who, you know, when I got in touch with him a few weeks ago, we thought the perfect week, the perfect week for us to have Talking Foosball Congress together would be match day 10 when our two teams took each other on in the Berlin Derby. And much as I want to talk about that game and, and what went on around that game and how much uh, shame it is causing probably both of us at this point, I think we really got to talk about Nico. Don't you think? We got to talk about Nico first, right? I guess so, yeah. I mean, it's probably the second story, but, you know, why not start with the second story of the week? You know? <laughs> I know, I know. Well, it is the freshest story as well. And uh, this is, it's a funny set of circumstances. I feel like the Nico question has been one that uh, obviously came up a lot in the uh, Hinrunda last year when things were going a bit bumpily for Bayern. Of course, he did write the ship. Bayern were winners of both league and cup last season. They, you know, they swashed some buckles or buckled some swashed, you know, whatever, last season in, in their own sort of way. But all those questions sort of came up again at the beginning of this season when they didn't sort of get in the driver's seat in the Bundesliga right away. They've had some pretty poor results in recent weeks. We already mentioned that this was a particularly bad result. The last 5-1 result that they had was a little over 10 years ago against Wolfsburg in the season that that team won the title in the Bundesliga. What I'm kind of getting at here is it's not just about the last three weeks. It is about the cloud that has hung over Niko Kovac, his entire tenure at Bayern. I know we've talked about this before, but is it his time now that all the problems that he hoped to solve have not been solved quite quite right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not a big surprise in many ways. As you say, the results haven't been good, and, and this cloud has sort of hung over him for pretty much the entire time he's been there. 
but for me, I, I, I still think I'll, I'll always feel as if it, it was a missed opportunity for Bayern and for him because I feel that the things he's done well, he hasn't got really enough credit for over the last year or so. And the things he's done badly, I think he might have gotten away with a little bit more or more easily if if he were a more decorated coach or a bigger name or just a little bit more more sexy. Then he is. I mean, he's pretty sexy. If his name was Sam Allardici. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If he was Samuele Allardici of Boltono, that famous South Italian city known for its flair football. Societa Calcio. Yeah. <laughs> then he probably would still be in a job, but sadly he isn't. But I do think I, th- I think he's he's done a much better job than than a lot of people in in another club have given him credit for and will give him credit for. And, in posterity and i think it's a it's a a damn shame yeah i feel you i feel you because i feel like he was byron's what third choice maybe even fourth choice in in the time that he was hired it was you know pretty clear at the beginning of two seasons ago that they were looking to bring Julian Nagelsmann on. They got a bit of cold feet about whether that was going to work. They thought about, you know, hiring a couple of other people who, you know, at the time were looking to be uh, a little bit stronger in terms of the form of the team that they were coaching. And it just, they got down the list and it ended up on Niko Kovac. And of course the fact that he had played for the team and that he had, a lot of wind in his sails, having led Eintracht into the Europa League through the German Cup win, that this was going to be perhaps the best thing that they could do for the very difficult time they were about to go into. I mean, Bayern had seen probably one of the the great eras of, of the whole club history. I mean, you would put the era of, you know, the last seven title wins up against even the 70s. Bayern, you know, in terms of how good the team was, the big names in the squad. I mean, you know, even that team didn't win that many titles in a row because Gladbach was sort of, you know, tugging the other side of the rope at that point. And the fact that you had a few years of transition at the end of that, combined with a a year of real transition that was Nico's first season, meant that it wasn't going to be a good time for whoever took the job at that time. And, And, you know... I will agree with Bayern fans who complain that Nico's football did not seem to have a lot of, I don't know, sense behind it. Like there was not sort of a, a club style or playing philosophy or, or like tactical signature, as, as, you know, the Germans love the Handschrift. But it was winning football for the most part. And if you're going to complain about not doing well in the Champions League, I think that's a very silly thing because that competition doesn't always reward the best team. It can reward, you know, teams who get on a hot streak. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I get it at this point that, you know, if you think there's a better alternative out there, that maybe this is the time to get rid of Nico. But I don't get it in that I think that this is still a pretty tricky period in time for anybody who's going to be coaching this club. Yeah, I think I think you touched on the the two key things, which is the first one. You know, you said it was going to be difficult for for anybody who took the job, but also whoever took the job had a uh, one big task that they had to complete, and that was starting a generational transition and, and pushing through a generational transition that was already long overdue. Partly because Ancelotti had been too cautious and, and not really gone anywhere near it. Kovac did that brilliantly. 
you look at, I mean, Zuda's now injured, but you look at the way he was playing and, and the player he had become under Kovac, you look at the way Serge Gnabry has come up, the way Joshua Kimmich has continued to develop into a leading figure in that dressing room. Kovac delivered on, on the big thing that was asked of him, which was to bring up the younger generation and make them a relevant force in, the, in a squad that was dominated by big egos. What he struggled with was then the flip side of that, which is, keeping those big egos on side. I think, broadly speaking, he did that reasonably well as well. But again, as I say, I think if he'd been a bigger name, that would have been an easier job. Um, and yeah, then I think your point about the the tactical thing is is massive because I think that's possibly at the heart of, of the debate about Niko Kovac and, and about a lot depends in terms of whether you think he was a, a good coach or whether he deserved to go or not uh, on how you read that situation. And the sort of Karl-Heinz Rummenigger camp would argue that Bayern have spent the last 10 years not only winning everything, but but making sure that for the first time in history, they have a defined playing style and, and that they have this kind of on-pitch identity. And Kovac's more utilitarian football was hollowing that out and therefore a, a more glamorous manager, a more tactically swashbuckling manager was, was always going to be more suitable. Or you could say on the other hand that, yeah, it was, it was successful and that's the, the be all and end all at Bayern. And then when it's not successful, you got to, you got to take that too, with the, take the rough with the smooth and either way he ends up going. I think he, he always knew that one really bad result or one string of bad results would would push him to the brink and maybe off the edge. And since that 7-2 win against Tottenham, the results have been bad and the performances have been bad. And the 5-1 is, as you say, the first time in a decade it's happened. That's a really bad one. And so, again, it's not a surprise, but I, I do think he's he's the victim of a, a kind of, yeah, just a strange constellation, a strange situation that he's, that he's been put into. Yeah, yeah. I feel as though Bayern... We're never going to be satisfied with Niko Kovac. And I feel like this is almost a repeat, although he got more years and, and, and won more trophies, of what happened when they had Felix Magat as their coach. It was somebody who had a Bundesliga pedigree, who had done some things in the league, but did not have that sort of name ringing out across Europe reputation. And he too got fired the year after winning the double at Bayern. I mean, this is a club that basically expects bombs bursting in air success as well as a degree of like imperiousness to the to the extent of almost intimidation just looking across the pitch at who's coaching this team oh my god and you know Niko Kovac needed more time to build that kind of reputation if he was going to come to Bayern and you know give off that kind of a vibe and in some ways it, it was he was doomed from the start yeah and I think I think the, the lack of experience showed at the worst times for him. When he made the really big mistakes, that was when you felt, oh, you know, he's, he's underestimated this. There were moments where you felt he's, he's still not quite realized exactly where he is, and he's still talking or, or behaving a little bit like he's still coaching Frankfurt or something. And they those moments never really quite went away. There was the comment about Muller a few weeks ago where, you know, it's just a poor choice of words that, that a savvier coach knows that you can't use if you're buying coach and you're talking to the media in, in that kind of context about that kind of issue. But Kovac repeatedly let himself get into those situations. Yep. I think in that regard, he wasn't helped by the fact that he didn't have a very strong sporting director in Hassan Salihamidzic. I think it would have been a different story for him if, if Matthias Lama had still been in that role. 
coaches tend to be weaker at Bayern when the, the sporting director is weaker. Yes. Compare the Zammer era to, or the Hernes era to Christian Nellinger or, or Hassan Salihamidzic, and it's, it's chalk and cheese. So, yeah, as I say, everything kind of adds up to to highlight his failures and weaknesses and to kind of slightly dull and, and obscure his his strengths and his many achievements. And it's a, it's a bit of a shame, but it's not a surprise. All right, before we sort of take in a little bit about this, uh, the actual game, Eintracht versus Bayern, which, you know, I, I think there is some things to talk about there other than the fact that it got Niko Kovac fired. Do you care to uh, think about who might be taking over for, for Mr. Kovac? I mean, the only name that I've heard bandied about very much in the last few hours is, is Massimiliano Allegri as some Italian press outlets would have it. Apparently there has been contact made by, by Bayern to that man. Yeah, I've read something similar. I mean, I guess... Everyone talks about Jose as well. Yeah, I mean, I I would be very sad to see that happen. I, I, I suspect that after his last few tenures and his success or lack thereof in the last few years that Bayern would be more wary of, of getting him than ever. And they were always a bit wary of going for him. Vengo would be another one that, that it's a sort of prospect that I always like to entertain because for years, Bayern, Bayern went after Wenger and Wenger speaks very good German and Erzessa. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's complete speculation. Eric Ten Hag is, is supposedly a big candidate and a favorite of Rummenigge's. But again, it's with all these people, it's, it's about whether it's the right time for them. And that's usually less likely to be the case if you're in the middle of November um, than if you're in the end of May. And they've got a whole preseason to, to plan and negotiate and do all the things that the new coach wants to do. So it, I'd, I'd say it's more likely to be a, a big name firefighter kind of option than a, a long term solution at this stage maybe your pankist again why not <laughs> yeah the only thing that makes me think that they might have made some headway on this is that today sunday that is much of the talk for most of the uh, you know morning and afternoon germany time anyway was that Kovac was going to be retained at least as long as it took for them to, uh, you know, play against Olympiacos and, you know, hopefully uh, with a good result, go through to the knockout stages of the Champions League uh, at midweek, as well as face Borussia Dortmund in the coming weekend. You know, I, I feel like I wouldn't be shocked if Bayern, you know, even if they had retained Kovac might have gotten a result against Dortmund and, and maybe at that point, but it could have been harder to get rid of Kovac and maybe they were thinking about that. But it also makes me think now that they fired him, that maybe they already know who they want and this person's already said yes. And he, you know, has agreed to a start date, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because it's not a really great time to put in a new coach, you know, getting ready to play Der Klassiker. Right. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. That dramatic change in tone in the course of today is, is quite striking and would suggest that, yeah, there's some concrete reason for it rather than just, Whimsy. Whimsy. Okay, let's talk a little bit about uh, all the, you know, fun on the pitch that was had by uh, the <laughs> Eintracht Frankfurt on Saturday. It was, you know, of course, a 5-1 win. And it was a game which was pretty much, I wouldn't say decided, but heavily influenced by the ninth minute red card that was given out to Jerome Boateng for a, a sort of a last man professional foul situation on Gonzalo Paciencia. 
There was a brief point in the game when, when Robert Lewandowski scored. Of course, he had to score. He always scores to make it 2-1, where it looked like Bayern might have a chance to get back into the game. But that was uh, really, really squelched not long after. How seriously should we now be taking Frankfurt as a force in this league? I mean, they have shown a sort of a degree of fragility at times, uh, such as last week when they were, you know, taken out by by Gladbach. But this is a team that I think no one should be surprised anymore for them to get a result against a team like Bayern and to stick around chasing the Champions League for, for a while. Absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, they've certainly established themselves as a, as a force. And I think also... It's just that sort of flexibility and adaptability that's so striking because the end of feels like all of the last two or three seasons, you know, we've seen a good Frankfurt team and we've all gone, oh, weren't Frankfurt jolly in this season, had a good cup run or did win on the league, but now they're going to lose all these players and and it's all going to change again and they're going to plummet down the table again. And then suddenly, even though two or three key players are gone, the team is still dynamic and all the team is has different strengths or another player comes up. Well, we've had it again this year that Jovic and Allaire and Rebic all go and the entire backbone of, of that sort of well-loved Frankfurt team of the last few years was ripped out and then players like Paciencia come up and, and fill their boots. I mean, he's, he's got six goals, two assists this year already, looking absolutely fantastic. He's not the only one on that team. It's it's remarkable the sort of way they just keep bouncing back and I think testament to the very, very good squad planning and, and foresight in the way the club's being managed. Whether or not they can maintain a, a top four challenge last season. Obviously, they collapsed at the end of it there. It's difficult, partly because I think the top six so far this season have all been so good at times and, and really quite shaky at other times. And it's very hard to pick who is going to sort of stay around that that top third of the table over the distance and, and who's going to fall away. But I think Frankfurt are definitely a solid bet to be to be in the race for Europe. Um, I can't see them slipping down into mid-table now. But yeah, and it's good. It's good to see them. It's good to see them responding and doing well and, and being part of that kind of melee at the top, at the top of the uh, table there. Yep, yep, I agree. And I definitely trust them to stick around more than... For example, I do uh, Schalke or Freiburg, who who are presently ahead of them in the table, but I, I don't think necessarily have the stamina to stick around up there that I really do trust Frankfurt to have. Okay, let's go back to our original, original, original plan, which was to talk about the Berlin Derby, because, you know, <laughs> that's that's what you and I really care about, right? That's the game that we really had our, our, our eyes fixated on for weeks ahead everything was was in place for a really really special game uh, there was you know the city is is of course a bit more wrapped up in football this season having two teams in the Asta Bundesliga for the first time in like over 40 years this game pitting two teams which had never squared off in the top flight against each other uh, you had two sets of fans that were really really up for it and that's kind of maybe where the problem came in don't, don't you think? Yeah, it would seem so. There was a headline on a bid set, which is one of the big tabloid newspapers in Berlin yesterday morning, which said, today Berlin will be the winner. And it seemed a safe bet, obviously, because unless it was a draw, Berlin was going to win the match. 
but actually only it being a draw could have made that headline more wrong <laughs> because the fallout from from that game and the behavior of of some fans on both sides has been such that yeah the city of berlin as a football city is is pretty ashamed of itself today uh on sunday and there's a lot of soul searching going on both in the berlin press and and among the two fan scenes because yeah there were nasty scenes the hatter fans as alluded to before firing rockets both onto the pitch and into the home block not just into the home block but into sector fear which is as everybody knows and is very clear to see if you're in that stadium where it's mostly families. You have more small kids in that block than you do elsewhere in the stadium. And yeah, how to fans still thought it was a, a funny thing to do to fire rockets ricocheting off the roof and back into that block, which has kids and families in it. On your own fans putting balaclavas on and uh, apparently attempting to storm the away block via the pitch after the full-time whistle, stopped only by the absolutely heroic uh, intervention of Rafa Gikiewicz, the, the onion keeper, who is not somebody you would want to mess with at all, even if you're a seven-foot-wide stacked ultra in a balaclava. Uh, I would back Gikiewicz against you. And all the onion ultras who tried to get on the pitch dutifully then returned to the block to cheers of Rafa Gikiewicz's name to, from the rest of the stadium, uh, incidentally. Union fans, Union Ultras also probably had in a very, very competitive field the prize for the worst banner held up by the two groups of ultras, which was a, a homophobic one which doesn't well, doesn't deserve to be to be repeated or translated, uh, but suffice to say was in very, very poor taste and yeah. uh, outwardly homophobic. It was, as I say, one of many banners of the two ultras basically trash talking each other in a in a pretty pathetic kind of way. And in a way that most of the rest of the stadium really didn't have much time for. There was, you know, singing Gikiewicz's name at the end was was kind of a cathartic thing, I think, for a lot of the the other Onionas who who were basically a bit sick of both sets of ultras just behaving badly. And, you know, uh, allegiances aside, I'm sure it would have been the same had it been a hair to home game. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a, a, a great day for Onion on the field, but, but left a bit of taste for many, many reasons. Yeah, I, I feel like... This entire rivalry, or at least the sort of ill-tempered part of it, which was in, in abundant display. I mean, not only all the things that you mentioned, but both sets of ultras took to hanging items that they had stolen from the other set of ultras and, and setting them on fire in front of each other in some sort of, you know, <laughs> totemic bullshit display. I mean, it was just pathetic stuff. And I really feel like... You know, there is a real rivalry between these two teams in as much as they occupy the same city. And, and there are many, many areas of the city where you'll find many fans of both teams. But ultimately, it's not a sort of blood feud situation. And the only people who want it to be that way are a certain subset of both teams' ultras who basically want to play, you know, like hooligan dress up. And it's really, really frustrating that those people basically won the day. It is. I think, yeah, a bit of context maybe for those not familiar, or not as familiar with Berlin football. These two clubs were famously friends in Cold War times. The two fan sets of fans were, were generally considered to be 
to be yeah friends with each other. And when the war came down, there was famously a friendly match uh, to celebrate reunification between the two sides. The, that that was made a lot of uh, in the build up to the game, and in reality, is probably a little bit overstated because clearly, when two teams become the two biggest teams by a long way in, in one city, then regardless of what, what has happened before, they're going to develop a bit of a rivalry. So I think denying the rivalry outright would have been a bit silly and a bit kind of po-faced because there is one and it's it's a growing one and not a very old one, but it's there. But as you say, it's not a blood feud. I think both the clubs and both the boards of the clubs could, could probably, in hindsight, look at the way they they talked about this derby and, and try to utilize this derby as a a kind of political tool in in the last few months yeah uh, to yeah cut a long story short there was a bit of a kind of spat over over the derby between the two clubs in that Hata suggested that the the game should go ahead next weekend which would have been the the reunification day yeah 30th anniversary of the fall of the berlin war in a sort of symbolic gesture union then quite plumply rejected that suggestion saying that that it would be silly to to link the football match to the the historical jubileum um anniversary and Dirk Singler, the president of union used the word class war class fight class and kampf to to describe what the derby was actually about which was somewhat controversial it was a poor choice of words on his part, but I do think, again, Hertha and, and parts of the West Berlin press really, really focused on that word far too much and and portrayed Union as, as trying to do something that I don't think they were trying to do. And I think there was a certain amount of, of bad faith in that, or at least misunderstanding in, in that portrayal. I also think that as nice as that suggestion might sound, Hertha's board have a, have a penchant for kind of trying to do these big set-piece symbolic gestures. And uh, Cynic would say it's it's partly because they they don't get much media attention outside of Berlin, and they try to do these things in order to, to boost their their voice and their presence, or their image, sort of create an image. It, it's, all, it, it's very easy to get into kind of tit-for-tat, oh, your club is rubbish and my club is sensible, and the reality is I don't, I think both clubs treated this this whole issue quite rashly and used it to sort of bash each other and while that is not uh, didn't directly lead to to people being stupid because i think those ultras are always going to be stupid or always plan to i think yeah in in hindsight both clubs should probably look at the tone and the and the the way they talked about it in the in the build-up yeah it's unfortunate that so much of what happened between the two clubs you know not only spoke to <laughs> sort of general tendency is of the two clubs, but also of, you know, in some ways, like cultural cliches when it comes to Vessies and Aussies. I mean, you know, Hertha as a club have have a penchant for being a bit, you know, in terms of their their public-facing stuff for coming from the board, for being a bit presumptuous and high-handed, and that was very much in display here. Yeah. And Union also have kind of a reputation for being a bit, you know childishly contrarian and churlish um, <laughs> and they played exactly to type and and it was it was it was in some ways probably always inevitable for that for that uh, dynamic to sort of live out but it's really sad that um it all came to a head in the way that it did and i i 
suspect that both of these clubs are going to walk away from this game many thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of euros uh, poorer, as well as uh, a lot of stadium bans for a lot of people. Yeah, and I mean, as sad as it would be, my personal view is that the return game should be behind closed doors, that neither neither sets of fans should be allowed to to be in the stadium for that return game. I think that that kind of sentence, though, though draconian and unfair, of course, and all the all the fans like myself who who stood there and didn't cause any trouble and were appalled by the whole thing, it's kind of the only way you you stop that kind of thing happening. I think and it certainly makes a a big statement, a bigger statement, <laughs> uh, a different kind of statement to the one that that Hertha perhaps imagined <laughs> that Derby would make this season. But yeah, I mean, I I would be personally all in favour of, of that return game happening because I think that the red lines that were crossed were pretty dramatic inside the stadium on, on Saturday. You know, ultras can get silly at, at derbies across the country in the Bundesliga and, and no club has really a perfect record in that regard. But only very rarely do you see such silliness that we saw yesterday and i mean firing rockets into the into the crowd or onto the pitch and and things like that is just it, it's and homophobic banners is is really kind of the lowest of the low happily for german football you don't get much lower than that uh, normally and so why not have a, a the harshest sentence you can you can have for both clubs which is spoil the other derby <laughs> Well, as long as Hertha win it, I'm okay with that. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about uh, Onion's win for a moment. I think it was, uh, as I you know mentioned before, it was well deserved. It was pretty clear to me that Hertha went to this game looking to avoid mistakes, looking to avoid you know allowing Onion to play the, their preferred style, and looking to basically just be a spoiler in this game, which I felt was a very foolish and cowardly decision from uh, Ante Chovic, if indeed that was his game plan. I wasn't hugely impressed with Union, but then again, I generally am not uh, when it comes to, to their play, other than a certain certain fighting spirit, which is a lot to respect. But, you know, in a way, their getting the lead late on felt overdue. Yeah, I mean, I think they, they certainly of the two teams were the more deserving to get a late equalizer. They clearly had a game plan set up with five at the back and, and looked from pretty much the word go to, to sort of break forward with, with long diagonal balls. It worked pretty well. They had throughout the game, a handful of, of decent half chances, not much more than that. It was a pretty poor game on, on all sides really, but Onion had a, had a clear game plan and, and it was pretty well executed and a couple of plan B's in the, in the shape of, Sebastian Poitra, who who played his role perfectly, and I think yeah, a, a last minute penalty for Union to win the game was was pretty illustrative of the the whole way it went. To be honest, I was surprised that Hertha looked so blunt or just just without kind of inspiration. They 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 didn't seem to have a clear idea as uh, as to what they were trying to do, um, whereas Union did, and they very very rarely looked like they were capable of penetrating the back line. And I was I was a bit surprised by that, not because I think this is a fantastic team, which you know, based on on their performances so far this season, it, it isn't yet, but just because you'd think for a derby at least, as Union were, you would have a plan, a clear plan, and a and uh, and a certain kind of direction to your to your play and to your game, which Hertha just didn't seem to have a, on any area of the pitch. 
Yeah, the only I guess caveat that I would put into that that I, that was a little bit heartening was that Ante Chovic, who has been fairly reluctant to do much with Eduard Leuven since he's come in in the summer, I'm not exactly certain whether that's a reflection of of Chovic's assessment of his you know quality as a player, or if this is just a player whose style he has yet to find the right place for, but. I found him to be, just when it came to a certain degree of, of bullish positive play, which had been seriously lacking from Hertha in the first half, I thought that that was one positive that can be drawn from this game. But I feel like, in a lot of ways, this was just another instance of what I find to be just a little bit of of tactical, you know, too cuteness from Ante Chovic. I mean, this is the second time that they have gone up against a, you know, promoted side who are, are truthfully third time that they've gone up against a promoted side looking to sort of give them the ball and and counter them. I mean, Cologne, I guess, was a little bit less extreme than it was against Ognon or Paderborn. And they got lucky that it worked against Paderborn. It probably shouldn't have worked. Paderborn should have won that game. It didn't work at all here against Ognon. I don't think that that's necessarily the best use of, of Hertha's talents. I mean, the only player whose strength that really plays to is Dodi Lukabakio, who is good at breaking out on, on a quick counter and, you know, getting a long ball that he can run onto and hopefully, you know, get one-on-one with a keeper. I mean, that's many of his sort of signature goals over the last couple of seasons have come that way. That's not the only thing he can do, though. And I feel like sort of putting your eggs in that basket strictly just because you think, oh, we're, we're going up against this team who doesn't like to keep the ball. Let's make them keep the ball. I just don't think that's a really smart, I think that's just, it's, it's, it's a, a foolish, it's a fool's idea of a smart plan. Yeah, I think because it's actually quite similar to, to how the other team want to play, you, it, it will always end up that the team that plays it a little bit better is is probably going to be the one who wins the game. And uh, like I say, I think Union seemed to just know what they were doing a bit more. You know, they seem better drilled, and that's you know, Wes Fisher has, has created that kind of team uh, over the last year. It's not a particularly nice team to watch, but when they're good, they know exactly what they're they're supposed to be doing, and they're pretty good at carrying it out. And that yeah, that was the edge yesterday, and a deserved win. But yeah, it's certainly not a kind of football festival <laughs> in any regard. Yep. Yep. Let's see. Your your boys did get uh, a, a fairly favorable DFB Pokal draw. You are away again, but you are playing the non-league side fail in the next round. So that's probably a, a sign of some, some brighter days ahead. Also, up next, you, you've got away to Mainz. That seems to be a potentially winnable game considering uh Mainz's travails yeah definitely and when you're in in good spirits and good form at the moment it's definitely a, a few weeks in the season where where you think you know you can you can bank some points and get to the quarterfinal of the cup and be looking in pretty healthy position at Christmas which any, anyone would have taken at the start of the season for certain so yeah I mean it's always with a caveat I mean I think whether on your stay off or not will however they do depend a lot on how teams like Mainz and Augsburg and to a certain extent just as often Cologne perform themselves because I think those those teams do have the potential to to be better than Union, but they also have the potential to be worse than Union, <laughs> uh, as some of them are showing right now. And yeah, I think as as it looks at the moment, 
uh, you've got a reasonable chance of, of staying up. Well, maybe we can get it right one of these times in a uh, Berlin Derby in the future if we can hold on to you guys. Okay, let's let's leave that story behind. Uh, incidentally, Hertha, they have uh, Leipzig up next, which is not a, a great place to be. They drew an away match to Schalke in the next round of the Cup. This year, the, the Cup is actually, the round of 16 is not happening before Christmas, as it does sometimes. It's been pushed back. It's happening, I guess, in uh, in February. So we got a long time before any of that stuff happens. Let's talk a little bit about Dortmund and Wolfsburg. Since we already treated the other half of the old Classica, we might as well talk about Dortmund and Wolfsburg for a moment. Dortmund, of course, they're going to be entering that game on a high. They hang the first loss of the season around Wolfsburg's neck. Pretty even in the first half of this one, but in the second half, Dortmund found a nice one-two punch from Torgan Azar and Rafael Guerrero within six minutes of each other around the hour mark-ish. Uh, Mario Gutza got a garbage time penalty kick in the end to make it 3-0. One negative that they're going to draw out of this game, Marco Royce was withdrawn in the first half. He seemed to have tweaked his ankle, his his oft-troubled ankle after a hard tackle by uh, Jérôme Rossillon. But an MRI shows there uh, is not a tear, just a sort of good deal of inflammation. So he might be missing the match against Inter on Tuesday. You know, who cares? We're all about the classic here, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, that, that no, I know. <laughs> group is, uh, yeah, looking tough. Uh, it's a... It's... <laughs> A good time for Dortmund to have to have hit form again, and particularly against to have picked up results against big teams. You know, you got two wins against Gladbach and one against Wolfsburg. Pretty uninspiring draw in the derby, but apart from that, you know, those are results and performances that will give them a boost ahead of a pretty pretty tough week there. But yeah, they they it's the same thing as ever with Lucien Favre as Dortmund, isn't it? They they when they're good, they look really really spanking good, and yet and yet. You always feel there's, you know, a little bit of inexperience or, or defensive uh, chaos just around the corner. But that's why I think results against big clubs are a very promising sign because they're going to need them in the in the last few Champions League games and they're going to need them in the second half of the season as well on this Saturday. And it's a big chance to to really stick the knife into Bayern and and assert themselves as favourites of the title because for all Gladbach are looking good. They're still something of an unknown quantity, and if Dortmund can can get a run now, I think they can they can once again establish themselves as as front runners. Sure, yeah, I, I agree, and I feel like um, a lot of Dortmund's problems have had to do with with either individual errors at the back or you know inopportune misses going forward. Some of that can take care of itself when sort of a team gets a degree of confidence behind their backs. Maybe they're building that confidence. I don't know. Maybe we can talk about, you know, scheiss mentalität uh, or, or not. It's interesting. I, I was um, on another podcast, the uh, Total Soccer Show this past week, where I was asked about both Nico Kovac and um, Lucien Favre, because both of them have sort of been under fire for much of the season. And, you know, the way that I put it was that I wouldn't be surprised to see either of these guys or even both lose their jobs if results don't go their way. Such such has been the sort of indifference in form at, at, at times for both of these teams through the season. I mean, Dortmund might be sorting itself out, but things can always go, <laughs> go the other way as well. I mean, we might see them lose to Inter and Bayern, and then Lucien Favre is losing his job as well. I mean, how... 
close do you think Dortmund might be to, you know, making a move like that? Is it? Am, am I wrong in thinking that that the ice is actually pretty thin under Lucien Favre? I think it's a lot thicker than it than it ever was under Kovac, and I think so long as the situation we have at the moment stays broadly the same in the Bundesliga, i.e., you've got five or six clubs up there, but all of them good for the odd defeat, and none of them really in in super duper. Oh my God, we're leading a title charge form. Then Favre is kind of safe, I think, because. I don't think it's really Dortmund's style to ship someone off mid-season, particularly when, albeit not in terms of trophies, they've had uh, as as much success or, or brought as much success as, as Favre has in terms of the way Dortmund are playing and, and how good they can be under him. He's, he's certainly not safe, and there's certainly still the same big question marks, as I said, that, that there was for much of last season and certainly was given what happened at the end of last season. But I, I, I think someone would have to build up a pretty significant lead over, over Dortmund. And I think it would have to be Leipzig or Bayern for the Dortmund board to really feel, OK, in order to, to keep ourselves in this race, we need to get a new, a new person in. I think as long as it's Gladbach above them, I'd say the gamble would be that we can, we can still catch Gladbach if we hit a run of form in, later in the season, which is likely that we'll do. As long as we're ahead of Leipzig or Bayern or around Leipzig or Bayern, then then we're okay. But you know that that might change if, as I say, Gladbach keep keep on winning and and look more and more like title contenders as the season goes on. Any quick thoughts about Wolfsburg? I mean, they had really built up a big reputation for being difficult to play. Defensive solidity had been their their real calling card. They had drawn a bunch of games, but had not lost. And then this past week, they got absolutely stonked in the cup by uh, Leipzig and then got beat 3-0 by Dortmund. I mean, is this just a case of sort of a bill coming due or has something suddenly gone wrong? I mean, they do have a, a Champions League date at midweek at home, to, or Europa League rather, at home to Ghent and then followed by two very tricky Bundesliga fixtures, home to Leverkusen and away to Frankfurt. Is this going to be the point where we see Wolfsburg take a tumble? Possibly, yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to judge, isn't it? When Leipzig, similar to what I just said about Dortmund, when they when they look good, they're, they're really very good indeed. And both those two teams kind of hit their groove in those two games. And Wolfsburg, however stable they've looked, however kind of efficient and, and solid a team they've looked under Oliver Glasner this season, they're... They're not star-studded Galacticos side, even by Bundesliga standards. So I'm tempted to say we shouldn't read too much into into those two results. But as you say, if those two results turn into four results like that, because you're facing four good teams at once and and your confidence is a bit knocked, then that can have a big knock-on effect. And for the you know the games that follow. Yep. Yep. One to watch in any case. Uh, we've probably talked enough for part one of Talking Foosball. It's been quite some time. We've got so much more to talk about, though, although we'll be scrunching it into a smaller ball because, you know, that, that's the only way we can fit all the games into a tight space. So don't go away. Mm-hmm. 
All right, here comes part two of Talking Foosball, the part where we talk about the rest of Match Day 10. There's a lot of rest in the rest this week, and I, I don't mean to say that it's rest like, you know, it's chaff or it's fat or gristle. It's just that there was a lot of meat in those uh, three matchups that we talked about at the top. And so, we, you know, the, the, the league leaders get shunted into the rest this week, which is crazy, but uh, sometimes it happens. They did defeat... Bayer Leverkusen, 2-1 in Leverkusen. Borussia Mönchengladbach now sitting pretty at the top of the league. They are three points clear of Dortmund. I didn't see this match in full, of course, was watching uh, Frankfurt versus Bayern. But man, were there a lot of highlight-worthy moments in this match between two quick-strike-type teams. Oscar Wendt scored first. The goal was put on a platter for him by Marcus Thuram's cross that followed, oh my God, one of the most epic fake-outs that I've seen in a long time. <laughs> Wendell literally went down like timber on the uh, <laughs> right wing. It was crazy. Uh, Kevin Falland even things up five minutes later after uh, another A-plus assist. It was a, a delicious through ball from Lucas Alario. And then, you know, Turam scored again before the first half was up. And, uh, you know, each side didn't score in the second half. You were talking before about your sort of feelings of not, I wouldn't say ambivalence, but a little bit of that there's a sense of the unknown with the composition of this Gladbach side. Not only the fact that there's a lot of new players, there's a new coach, this is the first time that Gladbach has has sort of been in a position to top the league for several weeks in a row. They've, they've done it, you know, single weeks at a time in some past years in the last, you know, five years or so. But this is, this is looking like a different animal. I mean, this is this was a this was I wouldn't I wouldn't call this necessarily a signature win, but it was another pretty strong performance against a pretty good team. Yeah, very much so. And they look like a team who are very very happy with themselves, which sounds obvious. Obviously, they're top of the table in good form. But if you think about the way they they got into this position, it was it was a pretty controversial decision to to get rid of Dieter Hecking at the end of last year, and. Albeit Michael Orza was a, a pretty big name and spectacular hiring as a as a successor, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have been too surprised if there was a, a little bit of hangover or a little bit of, you know, still a bit of disgruntlement or, or just ill feeling lingering in the in the squad from from that. But quite the opposite, they they look really really chuffed to be playing under Orza and and sort of yeah uh, with their situation and. Yeah, players like Turan make for a very, very exciting-looking team. And I think that, you know, they've, it's a well-balanced team as well. They've got players like Zomer and, and Ginter who can who can bring a sort of bit of experience and a bit of both just generally and, and, and at the club to the younger guys. And it's – all the ingredients are there. There's no, there's no doubt about it. But it's – remember at the start of last season, they looked really good too, and they just sort of fell away. And it's a very different situation under a, a very different coach. But, uh, yeah, they're still an unknown, as I say. Yep, I feel you. I feel you. And, it, and it's beginning to uh, it's beginning to feel like this is going to be a very long season when it comes to uh, the question of the Meisterschaft. Another team who might well have a say in that conversation, RB Leipzig. You know that scary, scary version of Leipzig that was around for a few weeks at the early part of the season and then, you know, kind of kind of went away for a while? It is totally back, you know. As I mentioned in the, the the first part of this podcast, they hung six goals on Wolfsburg at midweek in the Cup. This was an 8-0 win against Mainz. You know, of course, Mainz are, are really, really poor, but eight 
goals speaks for itself. A hat trick from from Timo Werner, a goal apiece for five other dudes, meaning literally over half of the starting 11 got on the score sheet in this game. I'm scratching my head now, having having seen Leipzig sort of make mincemeat of, of some teams over the course of the season to wonder how it is that they hit that dip for a few weeks. I mean, losing losing to Schalke at home. Of course, they, they deserve to lose that game. But, you know, they've had some pretty head-scratching results from a team that I feel like I, I don't know why they would have sort of slowed down the way that they did. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they've always been a bit like that, even even before Nagelsmann, where Champions League games or, or certain games where you, you expect them to to really take control and go, look, we're the better team here. They don't. They seem a bit reticent and they seem a bit unsure of themselves. And I think that's partly to do with the fact that it's easy to forget, but it's still, even now, a squad which has quite a lot of players who who were with Leipzig way back when, when they were, you know, in the second division or even the third division in, I think, one case now. It, you know, it's it's not like they've... No, obviously they sign new players and, and new players have come in over the last few years every time there's been a, a juncture, but they're still, broadly speaking, an, an inexperienced squad at the very top. They've only got a few years now of, of experience of Champions League football and, and being a, a potential title contender. So I think perhaps it's, it's to do with that. In that sense, Nagelsmann it has a similar problem. You know, he's, he's a big deal, obviously, but we saw in the Champions League last year with Hoffenheim that he still is learning to really be ruthless and uh, and brutal at that at that top level, and he's still sort of warming into his his status as a, a top coach at a top club. And so I think it will take time. And I don't think you know as, as amazing as the marriage looks, I don't think I think it's it's naive to think they're they're always going to be putting five goals past past weaker teams. But when they're good, they're really really good. Like they're really good. And and as you say, they're just scary. It's you know. Dortmund are perhaps slightly nicer to watch in some ways when they get in their group, but but Leipzig are kind of fascinating. Just just the the way they power through teams, it's a bit Bayern like, and I think the yeah over time they'll probably learn to channel that more and more and, and get more and more consistent. But yeah, it will it will take a bit of time. Yeah, I mean, I noticed watching the highlights of this game against Mites, there was something really scary about the way that they were scoring these goals. Out of the eight goals, I, I think five or six of them were ones that were, you know, you see waves of Leipzig players coming forward and just, it felt like it was a team just mowing mites down with their speed and their precision. Like, even at times when it looked like uh, mites were sort of cutting off a passing lane, like, Leipzig would find a way to get the ball over to the other side of the pitch and get it into the back of the net. It was just very, it was just very impressive. I thought. Let's spare a thought for a moment about uh, Julian Nagelsmann's old team, Tischke Hoffenheim, uh, a team that looked <laughs> for a few weeks like they were just lost without Nagelsmann, but they have surely found their way. In fact, you know, four wins on the trot in the Bundesliga this season, which is to say a, a league where a lot of teams have struggled for consistency, means you can rise up the table real, real fast. And, you know, Hoffenheim, they're on 17 points. They're level with Frankfurt. They are just five points off of, uh, you know, the top of the league. 
It's interesting to see <laughs> how the storylines can change real, real fast this season. Although, for Paderborn, there's only one storyline. Yeah, it would seem so. As, as sad as that is that a former Unione is going to be so briefly relegated. He was at the Derby. They showed oh, him on really? television. He was, <laughs> he was watching in the stands. Uh, well, well, yeah, sadly, I think most, most Unionas will be cheering every time Paderborn get, get thrashed this season because... We need two teams to be worse than us, and one of them looks like being Paderborn at the moment. So, yeah, but Hoffenheim, again, isn't it a stable club? Uh, isn't it? Isn't it much easier to to get suddenly turn your fortunes around and get five in a row when you don't have an entire city's media on your back and fifty years of history weighing on you and all the rest of it? You just have a pretty well-run club with good relationships between the, the people who work there and. You know, good facilities and everything like that make it look easy. Yep, yep. It's interesting that you mentioned the sort of things going against a club for a while and, and what a lot of fans and a lot of media can do, or at least I don't want to blame it on the fans and the media, but it definitely plays a role. In the story of Cologne, where things are really looking like it's going into meltdown mode, you know, you mentioned before, we started this podcast that it was crazy for us not to start the podcast with Bialorza. I mean, it, he's got to go, right? And the fact that there was a Berlin Derby and uh, Niko Kovac got fired shouldn't keep us from talking about Bialorza. So let's talk about Bialorza, <laughs> or you know, if if we want. I mean, Cologne got beat again. They got beat by uh, you know. A, a pretty, a pretty serious rival in Fortuna Düsseldorf. It was a two-nil win up up at the uh, you know whatever they're calling the Esprit Good Time whatever arena these days. Um, <laughs> yeah, Cologne have pretty much earned themselves a, a real seat at the. We're going to keep Union in the league table, um, which is a, a weird thing to think, considering the way that uh, that Cologne, you know, sort of wrapped things up in the Zweite Bundesliga. I mean, yeah, except that the, the way they ended that season. It's, that's true. The, the end of the season was pretty, yeah, pretty I mean, white knuckle. If we cast our minds back to that, that promotion race last year in the, in the Zweite Bundesliga, it really was the case that nobody apart from Paderborn, who came out of the, you know, back of the pack in some ways, uh, looked like they wanted to be promoted. And Cologne were, were front and centre of that of that kind of masochistic orgy that was going on. They really, having pretty much secured promotion with weeks to go, tries to, to really implode very, very hard and, and give a really good shot at staying in the side of Bundesliga to the point where... Marcus Anfang, who you know had led them to that, was was sacked a few weeks before the end of the season, and that's when Bielatsa comes in, and I think that you know that's that's the the bottom line really that his tenure started in a in a certain amount of acrimony. He then took them up in probably the most dispirited promotion that that any club has had for a while, and it's it's funny. I mean, you know, you look at that squad and. It's strong enough to stay in the league. It's strong enough to be much, much better than, than they are at the moment. But the rotation isn't working. Tactics aren't working. They look a mess. And, yeah, you'd think he's on his way out. But then this is this is Cologne, isn't it? They seem to always get in these situations, even when they, they build up a nice set of steam and appear to be very stable. Again, a big collapse always seems only around the corner. And, and once you do get rid of him, you know, you, you're going to need to get someone really, really good in and... 
and change quite a lot of things, I think, to to kind of reset properly. Yeah, I mean, is there any chance that they're going to be at the head of the line when it comes to uh, shopping at the uh, the Kovac store? Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad shout, right? It's, it's you know, it's the the size of club that that suits him better than Bayern in some ways. Whether he <laughs> he do that to himself, <laughs> indeed, <laughs> having just gone through a year and a half of Bayern is another question. But uh, yeah, uh, if I was him, I'd, I'd steer well clear of that. But uh, yeah, I mean, in some ways, it makes sense. Yep, yep. But it, it does seem something of a natural fit when it comes to his history at uh, at Frankfurt, another club that you know for many years, truthfully, in the years leading up to his taking over at that club, had a reputation of being not as extreme in their dysfunction and sort of <laughs> zigzag course as Cologne, but pretty close and, and had had a reputation of, of underperforming and underwhelming uh, uh, for many years as well. So, you know, maybe, maybe that's what Cologne need. They need, uh, they need a, a little bit of stability under a, a firm Deutsch Croatian hand. Well, they certainly need a Freddie Borbich as well. That's the, that's the trouble. Oh, indeed. Indeed. They have leaned pretty heavily on their uh, Balkan connection in the last several years. So the Frankfurters, maybe they're showing the way forward in that in that respect. Let's talk a little bit about Schalke and their comeback, double comeback win over Augsburg. Augsburg took the lead twice in this game, but some reason or another, they were not able to shake Schalke off. This is one of those weird games that, you know, you look at the expected goals in the game and you wonder how in the world not only did Schalke win this game, but how did Schalke conjure three goals in this game? Their their XG was 0.36. I guess they have a lot to thank in, in terms of, at least for their third goal, a pretty uh, amazing solo run and solo, you know, shimmy from Amin Arit, who has uh, sort of saved their bacon a number of times this season. What do you make of this game? Partly in that uh, it showed a lot of heart from this team to come back from two deficits, but David Wagner showed a little bit of flexibility in this game. He actually decided to sit Burgstaller down in favor of Mark Ut. He had to think fast when one of his sort of frontline central defenders and in, in, uh, Salif Sané went down injured in the first half. This was uh, a, a game that didn't look like necessarily the same personnel as we've seen in recent weeks for, for Schalke. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that kind of quick thinking, I think, is... And, and, and Wagner's sort of skill as a, as a coach and a manager as well is, is it kind of makes me quite optimistic about Schalke. I know it's, it's always foolish to be optimistic about Schalke, but the way he's turned around players like Harit and the way they've kind of ground out some results in some games kind of make me think there's there's more to come because it, it was a really tough gig to take on with the club really not in a happy place at all, and almost quite surprising that that someone like Wagner, who kind of has a bit of credit in the bank from from what he did at Huddersfield and and could have gone to quite a few different clubs, decides to yeah put himself through that. But I think yeah he had a plan always, and and it was never going to be that he'd suddenly turn them into title contenders a la a la Gladbach or. You know, they'd suddenly start playing football like like Nagelsmann's Leipzig or whatever. But they look a bit more steely than than they have done for a few years. And I think there's 
it just gives me the 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 sense that they uh, there could be more to come and they could be a little bit better than we might expect this year. Yep, yep, I agree. I feel like there was a sense of a false dawn, perhaps, in the uh, Tedesco era, especially in the the derby of the century and so forth. But there were also, over many more years than that, a lot of instances where you just felt like there was a sense of learned helplessness at Schalke, where they would have something go against them, uh, go down in a game or, or have a call go against them, and they would just crumble. But this this team doesn't look like that at all, and I think that's a big positive for Schalke going forward. One more game to address, I guess, pretty briefly. But the storyline that is sort of coming out of it, this is Werder Bremen versus SC Freiburg. It was a 2-2 draw in the end. And, you know, this is this is the fifth draw in a row for Bremen, which is weird enough. And it's another case of the whole, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda for this team as they let in a goal in injury time. In fact, four of those five draws, they have surrendered a lead in the second half. I mean, at least this time, Kit, they can just blame it all all, all on their goalkeeper, right? <laughs> yeah. A few of them graciously came out and, and defended him, which is always nice to see. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, everybody, of course, you're not going to just blame this on your goalkeeper, although he did play a very big hand in, in both of the goals. Florian Kofelt preferred to zero in on the missed opportunities up front. And I think he's probably got a point in that, you know, Werder Bremen looked a lot more potent than did Freiburg, but I also can't lie and 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 say that I thought that they were, you know, absolutely bossing this game or had indeed absolutely bossed a lot of the games in which they had a lead and gave it up. I mean, I look at Werder Bremen and I look at where they are on the table and how many points they have right now, and I think eh, maybe that's a little less than, than I would have expected, but I kind of feel like they're they're a mid-table team at the moment. Yeah, they're a pretty solid, solid mid-table bat. I think Cruiser Gang has, has, has blunted them, and I think they need a bit more fresh blood and a couple more kind of exciting players to really turn into a team that you know can properly challenge for Europe. But if if they stay around mid-table and, and they don't kind of start slipping further down, I think all the ingredients are there uh, under Corfed for them to kind of build a, a, a more potent squad and, and one that can attack. But it's, I think this season is probably going to be one of those where you, you sit it out and, uh, and, and wait for things to change next summer. I feel you. Okay, that is it for this Talking Foosball edition. It was produced, as always, by Aiden Rantoul. Really good to have you back on the podcast, Kit, even if your team went and ruined my Friggin' weekend. <laughs> no worries. It was a pleasure on both fronts. Yep, yep. I bet it was. There's always uh, the, the Rook Runda. Uh, you can follow Kit on Twitter, of course, at Kit Holden. You can read his work at the Mail Online at Agence France Presse. And, uh, you know, Der Tagesspiegel, if you read German. If you want to contact me, I'm at Mr. Matt Herman on Twitter. Please just subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your pods. Do leave us a rating. It's always a big help to get those. It helps uh, visibility and such. Talking Football Fantasy with JT and Flo. They'll be back later in the week. They'll get you all sorted for Match Day 11. Bis zum nächsten Mal, y'all.